Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Lead. I am Jake Tapper, and I am live on the campaign trail here in beautiful... Columbia, South Carolina, where earlier today I sat down for an exclusive interview with Republican presidential candidate, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. DeSantis was here in South Carolina to roll out a major policy announcement about the U.S. military. But, of course, I asked him about the big breaking news that his key competitor, Republican frontrunner and former president Donald Trump, announced earlier today that he'd been told he is the target of the special counsel's criminal investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 Election. Trump also said that he's been told to appear this week, Thursday at the latest, before the federal grand jury in D.C. Trump wrote on Truth Social today, quote, deranged to Jack Smith, the prosecutor with Joe Biden's Department of Justice, sent a letter, again it was Sunday night, stating that I am a target of the January 6th grand jury investigation and giving me a very short four days to report to the grand jury, which almost always means an arrest and indictment, end quote. Trump's revelation comes as we learn of several important new developments in the January 6th investigation. One, a Trump advisor is expected to appear before that grand jury this week. Two, sources say the special counsel's team has also contacted former Arizona governor Doug Ducey, a Republican whom Trump also pressured to overturn the 2020 election. Three, we've also learned special counsel investigators have interviewed Wisconsin election officials. And four, in fact... CNN has learned that the special counsel's office has interviewed officials from all seven 2020 battleground states, all seven states where Trump and his allies tried to overturn the 2020 election results. Those seven include Michigan, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, New Mexico, and Nevada. All of this as a hearing is wrapping up involving the special counsel's other criminal case involving Mr. Trump, the classified documents case in Florida, where a judge told prosecutors a trial date in mid-December would be too soon, the prosecutor said. That my exclusive interview with Florida Governor DeSantis, which we're going to bring you in full this hour, touched on, as I said, his new military policy, as well as Ukraine, China, social issues, the state of his campaign, and more. But of course, with perhaps curious timing, Mr. Trump's announcement of his likely pending third indictment came minutes before Governor DeSantis and I sat down. So I do have to ask about the breaking news today. Uh, Your chief competitor, the front runner right now, uh, Donald Trump, says he was informed that he is the target of special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And Mr. Trump has until Thursday to report to the grand jury. If Jack Smith has evidence of criminality, should Donald Trump be held accountable? So here's the problem. Uh, This country is going down the road of criminalizing political differences. And I think that's wrong. Alvin Bragg stretched a statute in in Manhattan to be able to try to target Donald Trump. Most people, even people on the left, acknowledge if that wasn't Trump, that case would not have likely been brought uh, against a normal civilian. And so you have a situation where the Department of Justice, FBI, uh, have been weaponized 
against people they don't like. And the number one example of that happened to be against Donald Trump with the Russia collusion. Uh, that was not a legitimate investigation that was being done to try to drive Trump out of office. And so what I've said as president, my job is to restore a single standard of justice to end weaponization of these agencies. We're going to have a new FBI director on day one. Uh, we're going to have big changes at the Department of Justice. Americans across the political spectrum need to have confidence that what is going on is based on the rule of law, not based on what political tribe you're in. And then the second thing I would say is this country needs to have a debate about the country's future. If I'm the nominee, we'll be able to focus on President Biden's failures, and I'll be able to articulate a positive vision for the future. Uh, I don't think it serves us good to have a presidential election focused on what happened four years ago uh, in January. And so I want to focus on looking forward. I don't want to look back. I, I do not want to see him. I hope he doesn't get charged. I don't think it'll be good for the country. Uh, but at the same time, I've got to focus on looking forward, and that's what we're going to do. Jack Smith has um, prosecuted Democrats, too. I mean, he prosecuted, or at least was part of the prosecution of Senator Menendez, uh, Senator John Edwards. Are you saying that if he finds evidence of criminality, he should not charge Donald Trump anyway? What, what I'm saying is... When you're going after somebody on the other side of the political spectrum, if you're stretching statutes to try to criminalize maybe political disagreements, that is wrong. Now, look, this is all speculation, but I think we've gone down the road in this country of trying to criminalize uh, differences in politics rather than saying, okay, you don't like somebody, then defeat them in the election rather than trying to use uh, the, the justice system. So we don't know what's going to happen. But I can tell you with the Bragg one, that was stretching criminal law. The evidence of criminality was, was very weak. And even if that, that existed, other people would not have been charged under those circumstances. That's the problem. And we'll have much more with Governor DeSantis in a minute. Of course, an indictment in the January 6th case might be in Mr. Trump's future. But the indictment in the classified documents case is very much Mr. Trump's present. And seen as Paula Reed is presently outside the federal courthouse in Fort Pierce, Florida, for that one. And Paula, the, the hearing in that case just wrapped up with the judge giving some pretty strong indications of how she wants the trial to proceed. You were in the courthouse. Tell us what the judge had to say. Well, Jake, uh, all eyes were on Judge Eileen Cannon. She is the Trump-appointed judge who's going to oversee this case through its completion. And we were particularly looking for how receptive she would be to the former president's efforts to try to delay this, possibly even delay this after the 2024 election. Now, it was clear from her questions and her comments in court today that she is not likely to go along with a plan that has been proposed by the special counsel to take this case to trial in just a few months in December. She called that timeline, quote, compressed. She told the lawyers, she said, look, cases like this just take more time than that. And she really challenged prosecutors to explain to her exactly how this was not what is called a complex trial or something that cannot be completed uh, quickly. Now, defense attorneys also got up and they continued to insist that former President Trump is unlike any other defendant and that they believe it would only be fair to delay this until after the election. Now, it did not appear that the judge was willing to agree to that. She said, look, we need some kind of timeline. At least tell me when you might know uh, when you'll be ready to go to trial. Specifically, defense lawyers said that in early November, they might be done going through discovery. They said they have uh, over a thousand days worth of surveillance footage. They have tens of thousands uh, of relevant documents to look through. What was interesting, Jake, is both sides really made a big issue 
of Trump's status as a candidate. The special counsel opened one of their arguments saying, look, just because he's a former president, he's not a president anymore. They said even though he's running for office again, he should be treated like any other busy, important person. His lawyers, of course, really took issue with that. But Jake, the judge didn't seem interested at all in those arguments. She said, let's, let's focus on the process. Let's focus on discovery and at least getting a schedule down on paper to deal with the mechanics. Now, we don't have that schedule yet, but some good news for former President Trump here out of federal court. This judge definitely appears open to delaying this a little bit longer than Jack Smith would like. Paula, on the other big news of the day, the special counsel uh, and the letter to Donald Trump, has the special counsel confirmed that they did send him this letter on Sunday that that suggesting he's a he's a target and he has until Thursday to speak before the grand jury? They have not confirmed this. I've been trapped in federal court for two hours, um, but I know prior to that, we were able to confirm with multiple sources that he did indeed receive this letter. And in fact, his lawyers confirmed this in open court, referencing this January 6th target letter and the likelihood of additional charges. And they used that, Jake, as part of their argument. They said, look, we're representing the former president in a lot of different matters. That takes a lot of time, uh, both for us and also coordinating with our client. And they used all of this together to really push the idea that they're not gonna be ready for this criminal case to go to trial anytime soon. All right, uh, Paul uh, Reed in Fort Pierce, Florida, and we're going to bring you more of our interview uh, with the governor of Florida in just a moment. But let me also bring in the former uh, U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Florida, Jeffrey Sloman, also with the CNN chief legal analyst, Laura Coates, to discuss this big, momentous news in the race regarding Donald Trump. Laura, let's first talk about the, the, nude from the news from the classified documents hearing. Are you surprised with Judge Cannon's thoughts on the mid-December trial date being, quote, a bit rushed? I am surprised that there's going to be an indefinite nature of when there will actually be a trial, given the speedy trial rights of defendants being able to have their cases resolved within a timely fashion or at least proceed in that in that course. The complexity of this case, though, on the one hand, does inert the benefit of special counsel Jack Smith and that it's about documents in the possession of a person who he claims is not entitled to be in possession of it, obstruction charges and whatever's before the grand jury. On the other hand, the sheer volume of documents may be at issue here as is the security clearance needed to review the documents, their surveillance, close um, footage of the actual Mar-a-Lago estate and beyond. But at the end of the day, Jake, how extraordinary to think that one's candidacy can determine when you actually might have a trial. Normally the DOJ is concerned about not wanting to interfere or be seen as doing so, but an indefinite trial date is not in line with what any other defendant would ultimately have. Right. The right to a speedy trial, of course, is a, is a right that the defendant has, not the prosecution. Um, let me ask you, uh, Jeffrey, this, this Trump news could very well, uh, he, he could be very well be facing three indictments over the span of just six months. Uh, how do you think this case um, into his interference in the 2020 election stacks up against the other two, the Alvin Bragg case and the national and the, and the security documents? And specifically, what charges do you think he could be facing in the 2020 in the, in the election interference one? So I think what's going to happen is uh, Judge Cannon may be uh, calling the judge in the Manhattan case. And if uh, former President Trump gets indicted in the near future on the January 6th case, then I think there may be some communication between the judges as to how best to schedule this. Obviously, she's concerned about balancing uh, former President Trump's rights to 
review all the discovery. It's hard to get a sense as to how voluminous it is. The defense says it's very voluminous. Uh, the prosecution says it's a straight, simple case that we've been providing documents to the, the former president's team since June 21st. There was another discovery uh, production recently of non-classified material, and the special counsel has gone out of its way to inform the parties that there's only approximately 30 classified documents. So uh, there's a limited scope. So uh, I get a sense that uh, Judge Cannon is going to try and balance and see exactly what's going to be needed uh, for the defense in order for them to be ready. And then uh, I think she'll probably issue an order or something. Um, it, it sounds like not being in the courtroom, it sounds like that's what she intends to do. With regard to the special counsel's target letter, uh, obviously uh, it, we have some type of a uh, blueprint as to the other prosecutions, whether or not the special counsel is going to tailor it down to uh, a, a simple you know, set of meetings that occurred, that conspiracies evolved, is unknown. But uh, obviously, these are uh, momentous times. Uh, the fact that the former president is the defendant in a federal case is quite unusual. So uh, these are uh, unprecedented, uh, unprecedented times, Jake. Laura, uh, our sources tell us that Trump's legal team was caught off guard by this latest letter on Sunday, and they've apparently been calling lawyers and allies to see if anyone else got a target letter, too. Uh, we hear that no one else has so far. Uh, what might that tell us? Well, the fact that they're looking to find out who else might be there means that they might not have had an open um, kind of line of communication with people who may have testified. I mean, the list of people who testified, we've been told before the grand jury, is quite long. It includes those in his inner circle. And so finding out whether he is the only person to have been charged is going to be quite telling. But also the fact that there have been so many people who have been across different state lines in different aspects. Remember, January 6th is obviously a day. But it seems to be the culmination of the investigative events, which include everything that took place beforehand, including potentially conspiracy to defraud the United States, the idea of the false slate of electors as alleged, the notion of leaning on Vice President Mike Pence and others to try to obstruct a congressional proceeding. All of these things seem to be within the orbit of what is being investigated here. And you can better believe that when you're talking about all the different cases, some involving the state level in Manhattan, others involving a potential looming potential indictment in Georgia, and of course, a federal indictment in Florida and maybe one on the horizon for Trump, there is not the requirement of judges to coordinate between these cases, but a defendant is going to have to have the ability to prepare and adequately be a part of the defense. This is not like the E. Jean Carroll lawsuit, of course, where Trump did not even appear in the courtroom. He would be required to be there. And Jack Smith, in at least the prior cases, said they need about 20 days or so. That means off the campaign trail. That means actually being present. And so there are so many different moving parts here. But the, the continuous thread here seems to be grand jury testimony from those within the orbit of Trump not a communication line open between so many others to figure out who has said what. And we still don't know, of course, Jake, who has cooperated with the federal government. All right, Laura Coates and Jeffrey Sloman, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. More here from Columbia, South Carolina, and my exclusive interview with the Florida governor and 2024 Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis, who filed his South Carolina presidential paperwork 
just today, and this just in, we've learned that the Michigan Attorney General has just charged 16 so-called fake electors in the 2020 election. This is just coming in. We're going to have more from Columbia, South Carolina next. Just in to CNN, the Michigan Attorney General has charged 16 so-called fake electors in the 2020 election. CNN's Jessica Schneider joins us now with this breaking story. Jessica, what charges are these fake electors facing? Uh, Jake, there are eight counts in all, 16 defendants facing eight counts, really amounting to if they were convicted on all of those decades in prison. This is notable because this is the first time that these alleged fake electors are actually being charged criminally um, by state prosecutors. This coming from the Attorney General Dana Nessel right here in Michigan. This all stems from December 14th, 2020, when here in Michigan, um, 16 of those fake electors tried to storm into the Capitol just behind me. They were actually stopped by police, but they had these fake certificates declaring Donald Trump the winner of the state of Michigan, despite the fact that Joe Biden had actually won this state by 154,000 votes. The police stopped those electors from forcing their way into the Capitol, but they were prepared to try to argue that Donald Trump had won the election. And after a long investigation by the attorney general, she actually initially referred it to federal prosecutors at DOJ, but then actually started her own investigation back in January. She is now charging 16 of those defendants. We've been watching the court proceedings happen throughout the day here. Those defendants are expected that they will turn themselves in in the coming days. And I will note that there are some notable names among these 16 defendants. One of them is Michonne Maddock. She's the co-chair of the Michigan Republican Party. Another one, Kathy Burden. She's one of the Republican National Committee members here in Michigan. So Jake, this is a notable move by the state's attorney general, Dana Nessel, charging 16 of these fake electors, notably, there's also these investigations into the fake electors scheme in those six other states where those electors tried to submit those fake documents in favor of Donald Trump. Those investigations, particularly in Georgia and Arizona, are ongoing. And today, the first state charges against those fake electors for a number of different charges, including forgery, um, also conspiracy to commit election law forgery. So, Jake, a notable move coming from the attorney general here in Lansing, Michigan. All right, Jessica Schneider with the breaking news for us in Lansing, Michigan. Thank you. So much. Appreciate it. In just a moment, uh, my interview with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. But first, the other major news today involving Donald Trump, uh, a target in special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into January 6th and the efforts to overturn the election. Let's bring in Alyssa Farrah Griffin, uh, former White House uh, Director of Strategic Communications for Donald Trump. Um, Alyssa, thanks for joining us. So given your experience in the White House, what's your reaction to the special counsel apparently telling Trump that he's a target in this investigation as they move closer to, to bringing charges related uh, to the attempt to overturn the election. Listen, I'm not surprised that the special counsels decided to move forward. We all saw what happened on January 6th. Uh, we, we, we knew what was leading up to it. We heard the different efforts to uh, defraud Americans by overturning the election results, uh, the incitement of the violence at the Capitol. So I think it's, it's prudent. It's the right decision. But what I'm still stunned by is in the year of our Lord 2023, uh, most Republicans, even those running against Donald Trump, are not willing to just say the God's honest truth of what we know about January 6th and actually use what may be, end up being a third indictment to try to chip away at his support and try to move ahead in the polls. 
Well, that's what my next question for you, because you said we all saw what happened on, on January 6th and in the months leading up to it, of course. Um, but with the exception of uh, Chris Christie, Will Hurd, uh, and Asa Hutchinson, uh, the Republicans running against Donald Trump uh, aren't really acknowledging what you acknowledge, what, what I saw with my own eyes. Uh, you heard my interview, the excerpt of my interview with uh, Ron DeSantis, Governor DeSantis, talking about this issue, and he, he repeated a now common Republican talking point about the weaponization of the Justice Department uh, using uh, the legal apparatus to score political points. He also said, in his view, uh, it would be bad for the country if Trump were indicted for his role in and around uh, the insurrection. We played uh, all of that earlier in the show. H how do you see those arguments? How, what, what did you think of his response? Listen, as Republicans, we can't say we're the party of law and order, but then turn a blind eye to both the classified documents mishandling, but also the egregious actions around January 6th. Most Republican, elected Republicans in Washington, D.C., knew what happened January 6th. Kevin McCarthy said, I'm done with this guy. We remember the denunciations. We remember Nikki Haley going down to the RNC meeting and saying it's time to move on. Most common sense sane Republicans knew how bad that was. But they went back to Donald Trump. I don't know if it was the fundraising that he carries, the name recognition with the base, but we know what the reality is. And for us to be a forward-looking party that's going to be able to win a general, a general election and nationally, we cannot deny reality. Uh, to the to Governor DeSantis's point, I would simply say this. Let's put the shoe on the other foot. If this was Barack Obama or Joe Biden who incited January 6th, I assure you every Republican congressional committee would be investigating it and called for him to be charged. Alyssa Farrah Griffin, thanks so much. Uh, today, I sat down here in Columbia, South Carolina with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis for this exclusive interview. This was just minutes after he had unveiled a sweeping new military policy, uh, DeSantis said in that announcement speech, uh, that his proposals are intended to, quote, rip the woke out of the U.S. military. It's a military that has been ordered by civilian officials uh, to pursue political ideology, to pursue social experimentation, to be yet another institution in American life that gets infected with the woke mind virus. So the DeSantis plan includes uh, ending all groups and positions in the Pentagon that focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, uh, banning transgender service members from serving as they identify, ending funding for what DeSantis calls, quote, activist climate change programs, unquote. DeSantis also wants to reinstate all service members who were removed for refusing the COVID vaccine, and he wants to punish any retired generals and admirals who speak out harshly against a sitting president or Congress or other officials. DeSantis says the things he wants to eliminate are harming the res readiness of the U.S. military. This is changing the character of the military, it's changing the culture of our services, uh, and it's creating a situation in which great warriors have been driven away, and recruiting is at an all-time low post-abolition of the draft in the Vietnam conflict. It is true that recruitment is at a low, but we should note Pentagon officials repeatedly reject uh, almost all of those accusations. And that's where Governor DeSantis and I started our discussion today. Let's talk about this sweeping new military policy you proposed uh, that, in your words, uh, will rip the woke out of the military. 
The Pentagon response is that Army and Marines readiness is the best it's been in years, uh, and reenlistment in the Army is the best it's been in years. So their argument might be in response, what problem are you trying to solve? Well, why do we have the worst recruiting uh, that we've had since the Vietnam conflict? Uh, why have great warriors being driven off, such as with the COVID-19 shot mandates? These were people that had been performing admirably. A lot of them had had COVID. They had natural immunity. They were told, take this shot or leave. So I think you've had a big problem uh, with morale. You clearly have a problem with recruiting. And at this levels, everybody has acknowledged these recruiting levels are at a crisis. Why is that the case? I think it's because people see the military losing its way, not focusing on the mission and focusing on a lot of these other things, which, man, we see that in other aspects of society as well. People want to join the military, I think, because they think it's something different. And I think some of the civilian leaders in the military are trying to have the military mimic corporate America academia. That's ultimately not going to work. So I hear you. Recruitment, without question, is a problem. The Army did this survey. Uh, I'll give you a copy of it if you want. They haven't released it, but I got my hands on a copy. And it looked at it surveyed people, I think 16 to 28 barriers to service and beyond the ones such as don't want to die, don't want to be injured, don't want to be away from my family. The biggest issues were the number two issue, women and racial or ethnic minorities are discriminated against in the Army. Wokeness is listed here, but it's only, it's only number nine. Um, so that would suggest that wokeness is not as big. Well, but I think there's an issue about, like, not everyone really knows what wokeness is. I mean, I've defined it, but a lot of people who rail against wokeness can't even define it. And so I think it's a sense of, you know, this is not something that's, that's holding true to the core martial values that make the military unique. Uh, and I can tell you, the veterans, you don't have to look far and wide. Go to a VFW hall, go to an American Legion. Uh, there's huge amount of concern about the direction uh, that the military is going with all this. And here's the thing, things like DEI and all that stuff, it hasn't worked in other aspects of society. It very well may be on the constitutional chopping block in light of the uh, Supreme Court's decision on, on racial discrimination in higher education. And so it's not a model that I think is going to be successful in the military. And so we're going to do uh, what has been successful in the past, and I think you're going to see better recruiting as a result. So the Pentagon says that they do try to achieve diversity in recruiting, but not when it comes to promotions, that's all merit-based. Well, I mean, I think that we have seen standards uh, uh, watered down in different situations. I, I think that that's probably not accurate. Obviously, they're going to say they're doing a good job. I mean, we get that. That's going to be uh, their thing. But, but I don't think that that's uh, in tune with reality. So um, let's turn to foreign policy, because obviously that goes hand in hand with military policy in many ways. As a congressman in 2015, you strongly backed arming Ukraine after Russia invaded and seized uh, Crimea. As a presidential candidate, you've said that the conflict is not a vital national interest. So as president, what will your, what will your policy be? Will you want to stop arming Ukraine? Will you stop financial support for Ukraine? So first, a vital national interest to me means we would potentially send troops there. And I don't think anybody wants to see troops in Ukraine. And I would believe that in 2015 as well. It's more of a secondary or, or tertiary interest. So my policy is going to be very simple. Our number one threat to our country is from China in terms of foreign threat. We also have a threat of being able to not secure our own border. Tens of thousands of people are dying every year because the cartels are running fentanyl. So you gotta be strong at home if you wanna be strong abroad. We are gonna approach the world 
instead of Europe being the focus like it has been since World War II, and it was understandable why it would be after World War II, NATO, stopping the Soviets, I get it. But now the Asia-Pacific really needs to be, to our generation, what Europe was to the post-World War II generation. And so what we're doing is how much hard power can we marshal as much as possible to deter China? I think we're in a situation now with how weak we've been uh, that we are going towards maybe having a conflict with China. I think the way to deter that conflict with China is to be strong. So I would have the Europeans do more in Europe. Um, that's more in their backyard. That's more of an interest for them. You know, I would be willing to be helpful to try to bring it to a conclusion there, but I am not going to diminish our stocks and not send to, to Taiwan. I'm not going to make us less capable to respond to exigencies. And you got to care at least as much about your own border as you do about foreign borders. So when you talk about trying to bring, uh, bring an end to the conflict, would you um, push Zelensky to make concessions to Russia to cede land that Russia seized in, in, in its attack? So what I would say is what the goal should be a sustainable, enduring peace in Europe, but that one that does not reward aggression. And there's going to be different levers that you're going to be able to pull. We will pull some levers against Russia. We're going to do be much more aggressive on energy and export because I think that's been Putin's lifeline. I want the Europeans dependent on the United States for that, not him. We're also going to turn the screws on the Iranians. The Iranians have been one of Putin's biggest benefactors, and they've benefited from Biden's approach there. So, so we'll use the leverage that we have, uh, but the goal is going to be a sustainable peace that does not reward aggression. What do you say to the argument Argument that Xi Jinping is watching the U.S. response to Ukraine to game out how the U.S. would respond if China invaded Taiwan. President Biden has said that U.S. forces would defend Taiwan if China invaded. Would you do the same? Would you order the U.S. military to defend Taiwan? Well, two things. So first, how does China view this? I mean, it's somewhat speculative. Uh, I think what they would like to see in Russia, Ukraine, is a multi-year stalemate and quagmire where the West is pouring in hundred billion, another two hundred billion dollars of weapons. Our stocks continue to decline. They don't really care about the Russians. Russia will be more dependent on China as a result of that. So I think that's what Xi would like to see ideally. Now in terms of Taiwan, that is a significant interest of the United States. Taiwan is a strong ally. Uh, Taiwan is important for us economically and for a variety of other reasons. Also, uh, a potential Chinese attack on Taiwan successfully would have big reverberations in the Asia Pacific. But our policy is going to be very simple. We're going to deter that from happening. China respects hard power. If you have hard power, if you have strong alliances with the Japanese, South, I visited there a few, few months ago. The Koreans and the Japanese are getting along now. They never used to get along because they both see the threat uh, posed by China. So we're going to work together. We're going to be much stronger. We're going to project power, and we're going to deter that from happening. Let's talk about some issues here uh, in the United States. Uh, you've been asked by this by a number of uh, members of conservative media, and you have yet to give a yes or no answer. You recently signed a six-week abortion ban in Florida. Yes or no, would you support that as a nationwide ban? So I said I'm pro-life. I will be a pro-life president, um, and we will support pro-life policies. Um, at the same time, I look at what's going on in the Congress, and, you know, I don't see them, you know, making very much headway. I think the danger from Congress is if we lose the election, they're going to try to nationalize abortion up until the moment of birth. And in some liberal states, you actually have post-birth abortions. And I think that that's wrong. Also, with respect to the military thing that we talked about, we're going to reverse the abortion tourism policy 
in the Department of Defense. They are actually paying people uh, to go and get abortions with American tax dollars as part of the military. They won't even pay you. You lose a loved one. You don't get that type of time off to be able to go uh, to do funerals. And so we're going to continue to stand for life, and we're going to make sure that everybody knows that. So I asked the DeSantis campaign what exactly the governor was referring to when he referred to post-birth abortion. They said it was a reference to when an infant survives an abortion procedure and life-saving medical care is not provided. Much more of my interview with Governor DeSantis coming, including my asking him what he makes of the perception from politicals out, politicos out there that he might be less electable at this state in the 2024 race. We're going to have more from Columbia, South Carolina next. Welcome back to The Lead, live from Columbia, South Carolina. The second half of my sit-down with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis started with the second half of his campaign, as he has, as of yet, failed to catch up to the leading candidate, former President Donald Trump. So what is the DeSantis strategy to make up lost ground? That's what I asked him right after we discussed his support for a six-week abortion ban. So this issue gets into the, the state of the race because... Some of your supporters are disappointed that your campaign has yet to catch fire the way they would want in terms of polling. Uh, One Republican pollster, one who is sympathetic to you, I was asking her about your campaign, and she said she thought the issue was you bumped up at the beginning because voters, Republican voters, saw you as a more electable conservative like Trump, like Trump without the baggage. But then they say as you go further and further to the right on some of these divisive social issues that could alienate moderates, suburban moms, et cetera, Republican voters see you as less and less electable. Uh, What do you say to that analysis? Well, I don't think it's true. I mean, the the proof is in the pudding. I mean, I took a state that had been a one-point state, and we won it by 20 percentage points, 1.5 million votes. Uh, Our bread and butter were people like suburban moms. Uh, We're leading a big movement for for parents' rights, to have the parents be involved in education, school choice, get the indoctrination out of schools. Of course, there's bread and butter issues that matter, too. Inflation, uh, more economic opportunity. Florida's economy is ranked number one of all 50 states. We've worked hard. Uh, to make that happen. Crime. You see crime in all these different communities uh, that is now even going into suburbs and some areas. So I think that there's a lot of things. I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason is, is uh, I was getting a lot of media attention at the time coming off the victory. I had to do my job as governor with my legislative session, and we had a great legislative session. We did a lot of great things, actually things that are appeal to huge majorities of the, of the population. So I think that that analysis is wrong. Um, but I had to do that. And so I was basically taking five uh, really nonstop since then because a lot of people view me as a threat. I think the left views me as a threat because they think I'll beat Biden and actually deliver on all this stuff. And then, of course, people that have their allegiances within the re- allegiances in the Republican side, you know, have gone after me. But the reality is this is a state-by-state process. I'm not running a campaign to try to juice, you know, whatever we are in the national polls. I mean, I, whatever we did in the CNN compared, whatever, it's fine. I'm definitely doing better than everybody else. But it's state-by-state, state, obviously. It's state-by-state. State. Right. So we're focused on building an organization, you got to get people to come out in the middle of January in Iowa uh, to caucus for you. That requires an organization, requires to know where those votes are. Now, that is not going to make the same type of splash uh, as if you were trying to run ads nationally or do those other things. And so uh, we've been making you know, really good progress. I think this weekend was really good in terms of the family leader and some of the other things we were doing in Iowa. Of course, we're here in South Carolina. We're going to do a lot in New Hampshire. But that's going to be our focus, focusing on those early states, continuing to build our coalitions and going forward. And I would also just note, Jake, there is a narrative 
that they're almost trying a little too hard with this to try to say, because they've been saying that I've been doing poorly for my whole time as governor, basically. This is always the case during COVID. Oh, you know, he has the state open. He's going to lose. Then he fought Disney. He's going to lose. And then this. So they always want to get there. It never quite works out. In fact, I actually remember you you did the debate with us in 18. Sure. And before we did the debate on CNN, and you didn't have anything to do with this, CNN released a poll saying I was down like 14 or 15 points. Now, that was the narrative at the time. He's going down. So I think some of this is motivated reasoning, but I kind of get a kick out when they say he didn't fundraise well when I did more than Biden and Trump in the second quarter, and I'm just the governor. So I didn't believe that poll was accurate, just for the record. <laughs> um, your new policy that you announced today about the military would ban transgender Americans from serving in the military, regardless of their ability. And this comes on the heels of your campaign retweeting a video that the log cabin Republicans, which is a conservative LGBTQ group, said, quote, ventured into homophobic territory, unquote. There are more than a million trans adults in the U.S. What are their lives and the lives of the people who love and support them going to be like under a, a DeSantis administration? Well, look, in the military, it's all about the mission first. So there's a whole bunch of reasons uh, why you focus on mission first. People's individuality, it does take, you, you do have to check that at the door. And that's not the only example. There's a whole host of other examples. So I think the military culture is unique in terms of that. Now, in terms of the larger issue, the question is, is, you know, what role does someone that's a man have in women's activities, even if they conceive of themselves to be a woman? I think it's wrong to have men compete in women's sports. And I understand some of those men conceive of themselves differently, but it's not fair to the girls who are competing. It's not fair to the women athletes. The swimmers who lost that national championship uh, to the Penn swimmer, I mean, they've been training too. So I don't think it's good for that. And I think having things like locker rooms where they're having to share uh, with somebody who's of the opposite sex, you know, I, I think is wrong. So I would respect everybody, but what I wouldn't do is turn society upside down uh, to be able to accommodate, which is a very, very small percentage of the population. Last question about your military policy, because your new military policy says that the Pentagon should never prioritize climate politics over national security. Uh, but this week we heard from the Associate Director of Military Affairs for the CIA, who told a room full of National Guard leaders and allies from other countries that climate change supercharges almost every other global threat because of refugees, because of conflicts, because of all sorts of reasons. What's your response to that, the idea that climate politics isn't about politics, it's about national security? Well, here's the thing. How are you going to equip your fighting force to win? Are you going to put those considerations in? Are you going to create the most lethal force available? I can tell you, China is not going to use those considerations. If they need to burn more coal to defend their country, they are going to burn more coal to defend their country. So I just don't think it should be a factor in terms of how we project po uh, power in this country. Focus on how lethal we can be and focus on getting the mission done. Uh, I don't want to force the Department of Defense to be using electric vehicles. I just don't think that that's something uh, that makes any sense. You entered your candidacy officially for the Republican contest here in South Carolina. Before you go, are you going to win South Carolina? Yeah, we are. I think this is a great setup for me. I'm the only veteran running. I'll be the first president elected since 1988 that served in a war. There's very few states in this country with a stronger active duty military presence and veteran presence than here. Uh, we've also got great support in the upcountry in South Carolina that we're building. And of course, my wife went to college at Charleston. So we know the low country well, and I think we're going to be able to build a lot of support here. So this is a great state for us. And the way the calendar is working out, you're going to have New Hampshire in late July or 
January, and then here in late February. So we're going to be spending a lot of time. You're going to be spending a lot of time in South Carolina. All right, Governor DeSantis, thanks right, so much thanks. for your time today. Yeah. Appreciate, Appreciate it. Appreciate you. So only about 15 minutes, but we covered a lot of ground. Let's talk about uh, all of this uh, with our political panel. Scott Jennings, uh, former advisor to George W. Bush. Um, this is a rare sojourn uh, by Governor DeSantis to a, what he calls, corporate media uh, place, a non-conservative media. Um, do you think he set out what he wanted to do? Well, all the things you talked about today, whether it's transgender policy or you know the things he has to say about the culture of the military or... Um, even sort of talking about the nature of the count. I mean, all these things are pleasure centers for Republican voters. And, you know, that's what he's trying to, to get done today. Uh, he may not think that tons of Republicans are going to watch it live, but obviously getting those things into the ecosystem that they live in, which is Internet, Twitter, getting that out to their people. I think I think he hit a lot of topics that they, they think are going to work. And, and it's obviously his brand, this anti-woke stuff. It's his brand. And I don't get the feeling he's going to come off of it just because he's talking to a non-conservative media. So, Kristen Soltis-Anderson, one of the questions I asked him was a concern uh, among some of his supporters and a uh, sympathetic Republican pollster. Not you, I should know it, it wasn't you, but somebody who said that he, he shot up in the polls early on because he was seen by Republicans as an electable Trump. Uh, and then since he staked out these more and more uh, conservative positions on the right, his numbers have gone down in this pollster's view because they perceive him as less electable. Um, he kind of brush that off. What do you make of that argument and his response? So I somewhat concur with this uh, unnamed pollster who you talked to. I do think that the big argument DeSantis had going for him initially was Trump without the baggage. And to the extent that the policies he's pursued in Florida since his blockbuster re-election has thrown some doubt on is he still the most electable guy, I think if you're thinking about who in the Republican Party is voting with their head and not their heart, who's thinking strategically, that is potentially a challenge. The problem for him, too, is that if you are a Republican voter who's still voting with your heart, you might still be voting either for Donald Trump or for someone who is very much not Donald Trump. And so for DeSantis, trying to be somebody who wins a little bit of everyone, as I think he's trying to do in his interview with you today, it's a challenge because if you're everybody's second choice, that doesn't necessarily get you the nomination. Well, it would work if, if Republicans had ranked choice voting. But, 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 you know, but, so maybe in Iowa, and maybe in Iowa. Um, Bakari, what, what did you think? His uh, argument very strongly that he is the candidate that the left fears the most, uh, that they would rather have Donald Trump take on Biden because Biden can beat Trump and Biden cannot beat him. That's how he views no, it. No, I still think that that is a, a, a decently ludicrous argument. I, I think that most Democrats fear, and this is probably going to be in an email blast soon, but most Democrats still fear uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump got 74 million votes, I believe, last time. There's no belief that Republicans um, in the silent majority or the silent canceled or whatever they may be will leave Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the, is the candidate that puts the most fear, even with baggage, in the hearts of Democrats. I think what we showed today was that um, I was happy to see him sit down with, I forget what they call you now, corporate media. Corporate whatever. media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take, that's yeah, the nice version. That, that's, the, that's, that's the nice version. Trust me, I know. Um, but I, I was glad to see him sit down outside of his bubble because then it helps him look more electable. I mean, it, it's one thing to do a, a Joe Rogan interview or kind of the fringes. It's another thing to sit down with a, a consummate journalist. And I think today he was able to handle those questions and deal with them. And although I don't, I don't believe in his policies per se, but he actually looked decently presidential today. Yeah. I'm not sure it was a reset because everything is, I'm anti-woke, anti-woke. Today he just inserted in the military. 
But at least today he started to give the vibe. It's still a, a Scott Jennings thing. It's this a vibe primary. Vibes. It's a vibe, vibe primary. He started to give the vibe that he could be president of the United States. There was one thing I thought was interesting, though, on this question of wokeness, is that he actually acknowledged to you that a lot of people don't even know what wokeness means. A lot of people, like, and a lot of people who rail against it don't know what it means. <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's a feeling. It's, it's a vibe. And you, it's like you know it when you see it. Yeah. And I think that's what he's getting at because Republicans believe under Biden, a softness has crept into the military and that most major institutions have been invaded by something, he calls it woke, but they know it's something that they don't recognize as traditional American values. That's the broad definition of it. Even if you can't specifically define the word, you know it when you see it, and that's what he's speaking let, to. Let Kristen finish Well, yeah, point, but, yeah, and to that point, though, the phrase wokeness, I thought it represented a good bit of sort of self-awareness, that he mm. goes, ah, you know, this is a term that if you're on the right, you definitely know what it means. Yeah. But I know I need to broaden my audience. Now, a couple sentences later, he used the acronym DEI, which, again, is something that conservatives know exactly what DEI Diversity, is. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right. But right. but for your sort of median voter, I don't know that that's, like, tip of their tongue. So there may still be some work to be done there to figure out how can you take his message more broadly from, like, conservative talk radio, that type of world, to a broader audience. But it, at least that showed some self-awareness, But, but the voters so, and the Republicans... this is why I appreciate this discussion, because my friends who are sitting to my left, but who are actually to the right of me, and most, not most, but everything, it's it's a troublesome word for them to define. But it also woke, woke. and it's it's and even in his de- description today, it's the furthest thing from what it is. But I dare not go down that rabbit hole. But what I do want to say is that it's completely out of touch with, with what most Americans are feeling. You know, Joe Biden is out here talking about Bidenomics, and his disconnect is trying to make sure that Bidenomics meets people in their pockets. Wokeness or whatever Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and everybody else want to say is so far away from the average everyday American. These people who are working in this, as you can probably hear in the background, working on this hotel across the street, they're not worried about wokeness. They're worried about insurance. Yeah. They're worried about making sure that their, you know, that their pocketbooks are filled. They're not worried about somebody being too woke in whatever aspect of the government it is. And so that is my point to uh, Ron DeSantis. He's running against this fairy. He's running against an imagine an imagination. But at least Donald Trump is running on policies that I disagree with. But he's run on before, which he can articulate help strengthen some part of the economy. So that's the difference. Kristen, very quickly, uh, he said that uh, criminal charges against Donald Trump would be bad for the country, and he hopes Jack Smith doesn't bring them. Were you surprised by that answer? I was not surprised by that answer, but I also appreciated that he snuck in toward the end. It's time for us to look forward, not back. We should not be focused on what happened four years ago. You know Donald Trump is going to be very focused on what happened four years ago. That's the closest we saw to him trying to draw a contrast with the former president. I think he needs to draw some brighter lines. Not attacks, but brighter contrast lines. <laughs> that was the beginning of moving in that he direction. He also said that it was speculative, so he left a small lifeboat for him if he decides yeah. to leap on whatever evidence there Good is in the criminal though. charges. Thank you so much. Everyone stick around. We're going to have much more from the panel. Coming up in my exclusive interview, uh, I asked uh, Governor DeSantis, a Republican of Florida, repeatedly if Special Counsel Jack Smith, if he has evidence of criminality, should Trump be held accountable? Uh, His response echoes a lot of what we have been hearing from others in the Republican Party, especially those running for president. We're back in a moment from the campaign trail in Columbia, South Carolina. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper coming to you live from the campaign trail in Columbia, South Carolina where I just sat down for an exclusive interview with Republican presidential candidate, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. We tackled a range 
of issues, including where he stands on a six-week abortion ban nationally and his current standing in the polls. Plus, he also weighed in on the legal troubles facing his chief opponent on the 2024 campaign trail, Donald Trump. This after Trump announced that he is now a target of the special counsel's investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Trump announced on Truth Social, his media app, uh, that he received a letter Sunday from special counsel Jack Smith's office informing him that he was a target and that the letter requested that he go before the grand jury in D.C. sometime before Thursday. Trump's lawyers have not responded to the request, we're told. If Trump were to be charged in the January 6th probe, it would be his third criminal indictment since March of this year, something that has never happened in American history. But then again, neither has Donald Trump's behavior. Uh, there are the criminal charges involving the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, of course. Uh, and as well, there is the classified documents trial, where Trump's attorneys actually just wrapped up a critical appearance earlier today before the judge in Florida. When I asked Governor DeSantis to respond to the news about Trump during our interview, this is what he had to say. So I do have to ask about the breaking news today. Sure. Uh, your chief competitor, the front runner right now, uh, Donald Trump, says he was informed that he is the target of special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. And Mr. Trump has until Thursday to report to the grand jury. If Jack Smith has evidence of criminality, should Donald Trump be held accountable? So here's the problem. Uh, this country is going down the road of criminalizing political differences. And I think that's wrong. Alvin Bragg stretched a statute in, in Manhattan to be able to try to target Donald Trump. Most people, even people on the left, acknowledge if that wasn't Trump, that case would not have likely been brought uh, against a normal civilian. And so you have a situation where the Department of Justice, FBI, uh, have been weaponized uh, against people they don't like. And the number one example of that happened to be against Donald Trump with the Russia collusion. Uh, that was not a legitimate investigation that was being done to try to drive Trump out of office. And so what I've said as president, my job is to restore a single standard of justice to end weaponization of these agencies. We're going to have a new FBI director on day one. Uh, we're going to have big changes at the Department of Justice. Americans across the political spectrum need to have confidence that what is going on is based on the rule of law, not based on what political tribe you're in. And then the second thing I would say is this country needs to have a debate about the country's future. If I'm the nominee, we'll be able to focus on President Biden's failures, and I'll be able to articulate a positive vision for the future. Uh, I don't think it serves us good to have a presidential election focused on what happened four years ago uh, in January. And so I want to focus on looking forward. I don't want to look back. I, I do not want to see him. I hope he doesn't get charged. I don't think it'll be good for the country. Uh, but at the same time, I've got to focus on looking forward, and that's what we're going to do. Wanting to look forward, not backward, the closest Ron DeSantis came to criticizing Donald Trump in the interview. We'll have more from the interview in just a few uh, moments. Uh, but first, uh, I want to bring in CNN's Evan Pettis, who has extensively covered all of the Trump investigations. And Evan, today was not the first time Trump was the one to break the news of his own impending possible arrest, arraignment, indictment. Um, has the special counsel's office yet confirmed it? 
they have not, uh, Jake. They've, they have uh, declined to comment on all of this, but we obviously have heard this now repeatedly, including from Trump's own lawyers today, that he had received this, uh, th this notification from the special counsel, the notification coming on Sunday, and uh, Donald Trump choosing today to announce uh, that he had received a, a notification from the special counsel, which signals that they are close to bringing an indictment. Now, he has until Thursday to come before the grand jury if he wants to make his own case. At this point, we do not expect that the former president is going to avail himself of that. The last time, Jake, that he was notified that he was given a target letter from the special counsel, uh, it was about three weeks before we saw an actual indictment. And that during that period, the former president uh, went to his lawyers, went to the Justice Department to try to stop the Justice Department from bringing this case. And of course, uh, the case was moved to the Southern District of Florida. This time, we expect a much shorter timeline as possible, perhaps as soon as Thursday, if Donald Trump declines to appear before the grand jury, Jake. So Trump's lawyers are very busy today. They had a hearing with Florida uh, Judge Eileen Cannon on this classified documents case, uh, in addition to everything about the January 6th case. Update us on what happened in the courtroom regarding the, the this national document, the security documents case. Well, Judge Cannon pushed back against the Justice Department's very speedy, speedy timeline. The Justice Department said that they want a, they, they want a trial perhaps as soon as December. They said that could be ready to, to, uh, to begin this trial in December. Uh, the Trump team has been pushing back against that. They've asked the judge not to even set a, a, a trial date. She seems to be uh, based on, on what happened today. Paula Reed was in the courtroom uh, there today. Uh, she seems to be of the view that there perhaps will be a trial date that she will be able to set. It could be something that might that get gets pushed back. But the Trump team is really making the point, Jake, that, uh, you know, they have a lot of litigation. They want to they want to challenge the very nature of the charges that are being brought against him down in the Southern District of Florida. They also uh, obviously raised the issue that the former president got a notification of yet another set of charges. They say that that adds complications to the preparation that they have to do uh, for this trial that, that could be starting soon. Uh, we expect, uh, Jake, that the, the, just, the judge will issue an order at some point setting a trial date, acknowledging, of course, that uh, some of that could change at a later date. Jake? All right, Evan Pettis, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss, uh, former Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General, um, Tom Dupree and CNN's Abby Phillip, as well as uh, CNN's anchor, Caitlin Collins. Uh, Caitlin, listen to DeSantis when I pushed him on the investigations into Trump. Jack Smith has um, prosecuted Democrats, too. I mean, he prosecuted, or at least was part of the prosecution of Senator Menendez, uh, Senator John Edwards. Are you saying that if he finds evidence of criminality, he should not charge Donald Trump anyway? What, what I'm saying is, when you're going after somebody on the other side of the political spectrum, if you're stretching statutes to try to criminalize maybe political disagreements, that is wrong. Now, look, this is all speculation, but I think we've gone down the road in this country of trying to criminalize uh, differences in politics rather than saying, okay, you don't like somebody, then defeat them in the election rather than trying to use uh, the, the justice system. So we don't know what's gonna happen, but I can tell you with the Bragg one, that was stretching criminal law. The evidence of criminality was, was very weak, and even if that, that existed, other people would not have been charged under those circumstances. That's the problem.
So let me just repeat what he said there, because um, I said, do you think uh, if, if Jack Smith finds ev evident, evidence of criminality, he shouldn't charge Trump? And he said, well, defeat him in the election rather than trying to use the justice system. Uh, Caitlin, obviously the whole point of this latest possible indictment is over Trump's role in overturning a free and fair election. Yeah, it's interesting to me that Governor DeSantis, maybe not surprising that he focused instead on the Manhattan case. That one has been criticized from conservative attorneys, even Democratic liberal, more liberal attorneys who have said they don't believe it's a strong case that the Manhattan district attorney Alvin Bragg has. But he completely avoided talking about what Trump has got a target letter for today, which he announced, which, of course, was his efforts to overturn the election. He could face an indictment in that. Trump's attorneys likely know what those possible charges are because they include them on a target letter. And he also didn't make any mention of the documents case either, something that has been more difficult for Republicans like DeSantis to cast as political because you've seen people like the former attorney general Bill Barr come out and criticize Trump over it and say that he had no right to do what he claims that he had a right to do. So I think when you Listen to the words of people like Bill Barr, someone who is certainly uh, not attempting to be a Trump critic generally, that he has now been thrust into this role. And you compare it with what DeSantis said about criminalizing political behavior. I don't think people would look at taking state secrets to Mar-a-Lago as political behavior or Trump's efforts to overturn a free and fair election, desperate attempts to overturn the election. Abby, uh, DeSantis obviously trying to thread the needle. Um, like almost every other Republican presidential candidate, except for Chris Christie, Asa Hutchinson, and Will Hurd. Uh, careful not to criticize Trump, really, in any serious way, although he did say he wants the election to be looking forward, not backward. Going strongly after the Justice Department, um, if any of these Republicans eventually do uh, take the highest office, do you think they will ultimately change their tune on the DOJ or the FBI, Abby? I doubt it. I mean, I think if uh, Ron DeSantis is elected on this particular message, that's because that's what Republican voters expected of them. And if they were to just turn around and do something different, uh, that would become politically very problematic for them. Uh, DeSantis is in a political bind right now because I think he has decided that rather than try to find credibility uh, more to the center of the right, uh, that he wants to be further to the right, even perhaps further to the right than Trump himself. And if he's going to do that, there's actually really no way he can uh, criticize Trump uh, for these investigations because folks on the far right of the Republican Party right now uh, do not think that these investigations are legitimate. And and Caitlin's right. I mean, he avoided actually talking about what Trump may be charged with in the January 6th case because the facts of, the, of that case and also the documents case uh, don't support the argument that he's making that this is all uh, just sort of a stretching of the law and uh, even this idea of political differences. Uh, January 6th was not about political differences. It was about people using violence to uh, gain political means. So, uh, you know, I think DeSantis is trying to avoid those arguments altogether. Tom, in addition to being a, a former Justice Department official, you're a former Republican administration official. Uh, what do you make uh, of the way that almost all of Trump's rivals including Governor DeSantis, um, don't really seem to take Jack Smith's investigations very seriously. 
Jake, I think it's purely a function of what the numbers look like right now in the Republican primary. Um, you know, many of us thought it was inconceivable that you could have a leading presidential candidate get criminally indicted not once but multiple times and yet retain such strong poll numbers. And so I think the support you're seeing from the other Republican candidates simply reflects that right now the Republican base stands behind Donald Trump. And whether it's because they do see these prosecutions as political, whether it's because they do think the president is innocent of the charges, it's, it's unclear exactly what's driving it, but the numbers are what they are. Um, I think that Governor Christie or former Governor Christie, I think, is charting a different tack. We'll see how it plays out. Uh, but he and the others that you mentioned have, you know, kind of beaten a different drum here and really said, look, there, there is smoke. There is fire here. What the president did was serious and it's appropriately pursued. All right. Uh, Tom Dupree, Caitlin Collins, Abby Phillip, thanks to all of you. Uh, really appreciate it. And coming up, more from my sit-down interview with Ron DeSantis, including his response uh, to critics who say he's not doing well enough in the polls, why he says he's not worried ahead. Then CNN has learned the special counsel has spoken to officials in every 2020 battleground state. What might that tell us about where charges might be filed in the January 6th probe, if at all? That's next from the campaign trail here in Columbia, South Carolina. I'm Jake Tapper, joining you live from the campaign trail in Columbia, South Carolina, where I just sat down for an exclusive interview, interview with Florida governor and Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis. More on that in a moment. But first, special counsel Jack Smith's office has been rather busy. CNN has now learned federal investigators for the special counsel's office have interviewed election officials from all seven 2020 battleground states. All seven, of course, were targeted by Trump and his allies. CNN's Caitlin Polance uh, joins us now to discuss, Caitlin, does this give us any indication about when prosecutors might bring charges if they do? Well, Jake, it shows how much work the special counsel's office has done and just reiterates how close we are to the end, potentially, of this investigation now that they've notified Donald Trump that he's a target. And if you look at that map, those seven battleground states, those are the seven states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico. Those are the seven states where there were fake electors who were assembling for Trump, trying to submit uh, false ballots to the Electoral College that were not in line with the popular vote result in those states, those states with which Donald Trump had lost. Those are also states where there have been election officials speaking to the special counsel's office who were witness to two different things. People who were receiving calls from Trump himself as he was pressuring either the state legislatures to block the election result or pressuring in Georgia to find votes for him. Or they were the people who were administering elections, people who were the recipients of threats of harassment and who bore witness to how Donald Trump uh, was trying to hurt the result of the popular vote in those states. And so we put those all together and it is a national part of this investigation, uh, bringing all of those states under the banner of the special counsel criminal probe. Right. So that's the national part. And there's also state by state investigations. And Caitlin, today, as you know, the Michigan attorney general filed criminal charges against 16 people accused of posing as fake electors for Donald Trump 
in the 2020 elections. Tell us the significance of that. Yeah, a totally different case, totally different prosecutor, totally different level of government, state-related charges in the state of Michigan being brought by Attorney General Dana Nessel there. Uh, and these charges are against the 16 fake electors who signed those false certificates saying Donald Trump won that state when he had not. People who had tried to get in to the state capitol, uh, into the state house to try and say Trump should be the winner here, even though he did not win the popular vote. Uh, and Nessel, whenever she spoke about this today, she talked about how it's quite possible these people, these 16 people now charged with felonies, may fully be aware that at the time they believed there was election fraud or that they were following the president who said that they should give their their ability to have a patriotic duty here and submit these. Uh, but that is not a legal justification, the attorney general said. And now we do have the result in a state court that these 16 people will be charged with a crime. And she said that there could be more of this investigation to come. Jake. Kaylin Palance, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Congresswoman uh, Zoe Lofgren, who was a member of the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th uh, attack. Congresswoman, uh, good to see you. As always, the target letter uh, to Trump, according to Trump, indicates the charges could be coming soon and that he needs to talk to this uh, grand jury by Thursday at the latest. Your committee investigated Trump's role in the January 6th attack uh, extensively. You're also a lawyer. What crimes do you think he is likely to be charged with? Well, I don't know what he's going to be charged with, but we uh, referred four matters to the Department of Justice. Obstruction of an official proceeding, uh, conspiracy to defraud uh, the United States, submission of false statements, and incitement of insurrection. And we felt we had mountains of evidence to support each one of those four charges, which was why we sent them to DOJ. But, of course, the uh, special counsel has been able to talk to some people who refuse to talk to us, for example, Mark Meadows. So he may have information we could not get that might support additional charges. We'll just have to wait and see. I interviewed uh, Trump's uh, chief rival, at least as of now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, earlier. Uh, When asked about these uh, potential charges, he said that he hopes Trump is not charged. Uh, and that it would be bad for the American people. He said, if you want to defeat Donald Trump, do it at the ballot box, not in court. What would your response be to that? Well, it's absurd. This is not a political action. In fact, the special counsel was appointed so that the Biden administration would have no say in this. So it's completely independent to think it's, you know, what, Jack Smith should run for for president? It's ridiculous. Uh, And the idea that because someone is a candidate for president, that they are above the law. That's that's not what our country is about. No one is above the law. And I think actually all of the individuals who were the foot soldiers, they attacked the police. Uh, In the case of the Oath Keepers and others, they engaged in seditious conspiracy. But they were the low-level people, and that only the low-level people would be held to account and not the generals who orchestrated this, that that would not be right. Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, thank you so much. Good to see you again, as always. We've got a lot more from South Carolina ahead. Uh, As you know, I sat down exclusively with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, where he laid out his campaign trail strategy and claimed he's not worried 
about any lagging poll numbers. Stay with us. Returning now to our politics lead and our exclusive interview uh, with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a Republican presidential candidate competing here in South Carolina. He filed his paperwork here today. Let's take a listen to one key section, uh, a political section, not a policy section, where I asked him about his perceived electability or lack thereof as he seeks to sit in the Oval Office and his strategy uh, to focus on a few key states in order to win the Republican presidential nomination. Take a listen. So this issue gets into the the state of the race because some of your supporters are disappointed that your campaign has yet to catch fire the way they would want in terms of polling. Uh, One Republican pollster, one who is sympathetic to you, I was asking her about your campaign, and she said she thought the issue was you bumped up at the beginning because voters, Republican voters, saw you as a more electable conservative like Trump, like Trump without the baggage. But then they say, as you go further and further to the right on some of these divisive social issues that could alienate moderates, suburban moms, et cetera, Republican voters see you as less and less electable. Uh, What do you say to that analysis? Well, I don't think it's true. I mean, the the proof is in the pudding. I mean, I took a state that had been a one-point state, and we won it by 20 percentage points, 1.5 million votes. Uh, Our bread and butter were people like suburban moms. Uh, We're leading a big movement for for parents' rights, to have the parents be involved in education, school choice, get the indoctrination out of schools. Of course, there's bread and butter issues that matter, too. Inflation, uh, more economic opportunity. Florida's economy is ranked number one of all 50 states. We've worked hard uh, to make that happen. Crime, you see crime in all these different communities uh, that is now even going into suburbs in some areas. So I think that there's a lot of things. I don't think that's the reason. I think the reason is, is uh, I was getting a lot of media attention at the time coming off the victory. I had to do my job as governor with my legislative session. And we had a great legislative session. We did a lot of great things, actually things that are appeal to huge majorities of the, of the population. So I think that that analysis is wrong. Um, but I had to do that. And so I was basically taking fire uh, really nonstop since then, because a lot of people view me as a threat. I think the left views me as a threat because they think I'll beat Biden and actually deliver on all this stuff. And then, of course, people that have their allegiances within the re- allegiances in the Republican side, you know, have gone after me. But the reality is this is a state by state process. I'm not running a campaign to try to juice, you know, whatever we are in the national polls. I mean, I, whatever we did in the CNN compared, whatever, it's fine. I'm definitely doing better than everybody it's else. It's state by state, obviously. It's state by state. Right. So we're focused on building an organization. You got to get people to come out in the middle of January in Iowa to caucus for you. That requires an organization, requires to know where those votes are. Now, that is not going to make the same type of splash uh, as if you were trying to run ads nationally or do those other things. And so uh, we've been making you know, really good progress. I think this weekend was really good in terms of the family leader and some of the other things we were doing in Iowa. Of course, we're here in South Carolina. We're going to do a lot in New Hampshire. But that's going to be our focus, focusing on those early states, continuing to build our coalitions and going forward. And I would also just note, Jake, there is a narrative that they're almost trying a little too hard with this to try to say, because they've been saying that I've been doing poorly for my whole time as governor, basically. This is always the case during COVID. Oh, you know, he has a state open. He's going to lose. Then he fought Disney. He's going to lose. And then this. So they always want to get there. It never quite works out. And in fact, I actually remember you, you did the debate with us in 18. Sure. And before we did the debate on CNN, and you didn't have anything to do with this, CNN released a poll saying I was down like 14 or 15 points. Now, that was the narrative at the time. He's going down. So I think some of this is motivated reasoning, but I kind of get a kick out when they say he didn't fundraise well when I did more than Biden and Trump in the second quarter, and I'm just the governor. 
I want to bring in uh, our panel, former South Carolina state lawmaker Bakari Sellers, a Democrat, Republican pollster, and, uh, pollster Kristen Soltis-Anderson, and Scott Jennings, uh, who used to work under President George uh, W. Uh, Bush. Uh, Kristen, let me start with you. I mean, is, is he right? Is the reason he's faltering in the polls because or not, not soaring as people had hoped he would, even going down in some polls, uh, because... He had to govern in Florida, and the left hates him, and, you know, Trump people hate him, and that's what was going on. Well, there is something to be said for the idea that his late start in all of this did hamper him a bit. I think of immediately after the midterms, Republicans are wounded. They've just not had that red wave materialize. They're thinking, we cannot let this happen again in 2020. Although they did great in Florida, we should know. And they did great in Florida. And so right. suddenly the attention is all on DeSantis. He's the winner. He's got the vision for the future. And it was a moment where Donald Trump was really weak. In all of my polls, that was the moment when suddenly you saw this real appetite for something different. It's like when you're playing a video game and suddenly the boss that you're fighting, their shields go down. Now's the moment to strike. But DeSantis couldn't strike then. He still had session to go through in Tallahassee. And so I think he's right that there was this moment where suddenly he could have had more support, I think, if he had gone for the jugular right away. But he did have to govern the state of Florida, so it, it's tough for him. Could he not have compartmentalized? Could he not have done a bunch no, of interviews I, and gone after Trump more directly? So respectfully, the, the, the facts are Ron DeSantis is just not that talented. And I think people... As a politician. As a politician. I think people are seeing that. I mean, I, like I've always said, the, the, the clearest way to describe... Uh, uh, Ron DeSantis is when voters meet him. Uh, they, they reject him when they meet him. Uh, you know, there are two comparisons to make in races that are a summer before uh, primaries begin. The first is Barack Obama. Barack Obama was 20 points down when he was traversing South Carolina. Behind Hillary Clinton. Behind yeah. Hillary Clinton in 2007. When you had a young, handsome state lawmaker who supported him named Bakari Sellers. And you know what happened? He was able to catch fire. Uh, the other, the other way you, you just can call yourself handsome. On our- I, I did, I mean, <laughs> and I spoke about myself in the third person. Okay, interesting. Uh, yes. But but the other comparison is Scott Walker and Tim Plenty, and I think that uh, Ron DeSantis is more Scott Walker than he is Barack Obama, and I think voters are just starting to realize that. So, uh, Scott, what, what do you what do you take uh, from this, and, and and what did you think of his answer when it came to where he is in the polls? He, he's not wrong that. He is doing better in the state-by-state polls than he is in the national polls and that the state-by-state are far more significant. But I just looked at a bunch of Iowa polls. None of them are really great polls uh, in terms of their quality. But Trump is far and away in first place, you know, in the 40s or 50s. And DeSantis is generally in the 20s or 30s. Yeah, look, I I think he's better in the states, but that still doesn't mean Trump isn't crushing it in the states (laughs) as well. And, And if you talk to the Trump people, you know, as the polls fluctuate, they still feel like in Iowa they have this structural floor that they can never go below. You know, think about 200 to 215,000 people will make up the Iowa caucus. I mean, they think they've probably got, you know, 30 or 40,000 votes in the bank if they do nothing. And so if you're DeSantis or anyone else, that's a high hurdle to leap. The real issue for DeSantis is can you get close to Trump in Iowa or can you beat him? Stay close and move on and stave off the the idea that if Trump crushes everybody in Iowa, that the race is just over. You've got to get it down to a two-person race fast, because if you don't, it won't matter whether your name's DeSantis or Scott or anybody else, it will be hard to win. I I just have one thing to piggyback on Scott's uh, analysis of this. There's one person in this race that if they stay close to Donald Trump in Iowa has an opportunity, and I think that's Tim Scott. And I think that- More so than Ron DeSantis. More so than Ron DeSantis. But I I think if Donald Trump wins Iowa, 
if he wins it by five, six, seven, eight points, then the, even I think he's going to win by more than that. But let's say he only wins by five, six, seven, eight points. The race is over. However, I think that if Tim Scott stays within that five point margin, then the ability for Tim Scott to go into people's homes, the ability for him to say that I am a consummate conservative who has a I'm the only United States senator running who has a 97 percent voting with Donald Trump record. I'm a Christian conservative. I stand for these things. He goes into households in New Hampshire and does really well. And then he comes back to South Carolina. And although he and Nikki Haley together are coming up to the same, you know, 10 percent, I do think that he has an opportunity to catch fire because he has a story to tell. Whether or not the Republican Party actually votes for a black man to be nominee is a totally different thing. But I think just structurally, yeah. Tim Scott has an opportunity. The thing that Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis have that's a little bit different is that Ron DeSantis has tried to fashion himself to be a lot like Trump. So when the moment comes for him to draw that contrast, he's going to have to spell it out. Here's where I'm actually not like Trump. Tim Scott, he's different from Trump. And you just know it listening to him. The way he carries himself, his demeanor, the way he talks, his focus on optimism. No one's confusing Tim Scott and Donald Trump. Well, what, and so what, he doesn't what, have to I mean, distance just, himself one, from play, Trump. One plays yeah. in racism, the other is Tim Scott. So well, yes, they so, are different. So, so let me just ask you, because it used to be in presidential races in this country, the candidates would compete from the center left and the right left, you know, and the and center left and the center right. And then towards, after they get the nomination, they'd pivot back to the center to win over, uh, win over the undecided voters in the middle, et cetera. There's a different theory of the case now that it's all just about turnout, driving turnout. Now, you could argue that Joe Biden disproved that by beating Trump in 2020 and the way he beat Donald Trump. But it, it does seem like Ron DeSantis is running a, I just need to get all the Republicans out race, not a, I'm going to pivot back to the center race. Well, I think it's because everybody but Donald Trump is going to pivot to the generational argument. Sort of, it's not going to be as much right. about issues and policy oh. as much as it is about Joe Biden's in his 80s, I'm in my 40s, it's time for a new generation of leadership. And that really sidesteps a lot of the policy arguments. And we've not talked about it much lately, but remember, the country does not want Joe Biden to run and they do not want right. Donald Trump to run. And coming up against him in a generational argument, I think, would be effective. Stick around, because uh, we, we're going to keep, keep you here. Uh, Kristen, uh, Scott, and, and Bakari, stick with me. I also asked uh, Governor DeSantis the one question he has refused to give a yes or no answer to, uh, even when pressed repeatedly by conservative media, would he sign a nationwide six-week ban on abortion like the one he signed in Florida? We'll have more of our exclusive interview. That's next. Welcome back to The Lead, live in South Carolina, where earlier today I sat down for an exclusive one-on-one -on -one interview with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is a Republican presidential candidate. Roughly, you could say that he's in second place in many of the polls behind Donald Trump, but far behind Donald Trump. Uh, we discussed a lot of social issues, and I want to talk to my panel about them uh, right now. Uh, Kristen Salty-Sanderson, uh, he did not back off the fact that he supports a six-week abortion ban, in, which he signed into law in Florida. But when asked, would you sign it nationally, uh, as he was asked repeatedly by various conservatives on Fox and Tucker Carlson and the rest, he did not say yes. He said, um, well, I don't think Congress would bring me such a thing, but I'm a pro-life governor. Uh, obviously, he's trying to avoid a soundbite saying I would support us. I mean, is that what's going on, do you think? Well, I also think he knows he doesn't have to go there because Donald Trump's definitely not going there. He's already to the right of Donald Trump on this issue. And to the extent that you are a Republican voter who cares very deeply about this and believes that six weeks is the right place to draw the line, then DeSantis already has that contrast working for him. He doesn't have to further affirm it. 
I think the reason why he wants to be cautious there is that he knows when he had that blockbuster victory in Florida back in the end of 2022, it was in the wake of the Dobbs decision where Republicans were getting you know, their clocks cleaned elsewhere. But in Florida, they had passed a 15-week ban at that right. point, which is kind of where the median of public opinion tends to be in America. And so this was a departure from the recipe that gave him that big blockbuster victory. I think he recognizes that there is some potential weakness there. At the same time, he doesn't have to double down on it too much because he is to the right on Donald Trump of this already in a primary. So this is not a theoretical argument anymore as it was when, for instance, George W. Bush ran for president and there always was this kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, abortion's never going to be illegal, Roe is the law of the land, even if President Bush believes that, it's, uh, that it should be illegal, it won't be, don't worry about it. Um, But now we're in uncharted territory where states are actually passing bans. And I think there's a lot of consternation and concern among Republicans that a position like Ron DeSantis's could cost them the voters they need in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, maybe even Georgia. It's unquestionably. It it will. I mean, the fact and and this is where you get into a great deal of difficulty, even as, as much as I praise Tim Scott's campaign, I think he's run the best campaign on the Republican side so to this point. Like, you cannot not take a position on this. Like, have some courage, look in the camera, and tell the American people what you think. Even more importantly, Ron DeSantis, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, others, tell women in this country what you believe. And we're talking about 52 to 54% of the electorate, depending on, on, on what census numbers you're looking at. And the fact is, and you're right, in Atlanta, in Philadelphia, in Milwaukee, in Detroit, where, where these votes will count. And their suburbs. In their suburbs. Yeah. And especially in their suburbs. Republicans are handcuffing themselves, not only because they're out of step with women in this country, but the fact that they are so cowardice. Like, Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott and many others who will not take a position on what they want to do as men with women's bodies are cowards on this issue, and Joe Biden will lap them on this particular issue. So um, the other question I asked him on social issues uh, had to do with transgender Americans. Uh, he is, his campaign has certainly expressed some hostility towards uh, transgender Americans. They retweeted that ad, uh, or that, not ad, that uh, video um, mocking Trump on the issue. Uh, and uh, if he wants to ban, he announced today he wants to ban all transgender Americans from serving in the military uh, as the gender with which they identify. Um, I know that a lot of people, this is, a, this is a very small percentage of the country, but is there a compassion issue that might affect voters in a general, obviously not in a Republican primary, but in a general election? Well, I mean, his concern right now is talking to voters in Iowa who are going to turn out in caucus. And I'm just telling you, the belief among those voters would be they should not be serving in the military, that this is a mental illness, essentially, and that we're essentially trying to inject it into the mainstream of every American institution, and, and whoever we're going to vote for as a Republican nominee has to be strong enough to stand up and say so. That's what they would believe. And to go any softer than that, if you're Ron DeSantis or any other candidate, would be a difficult position for a lot of those uh, evangelical-type voters. So I think he is where he has to be for the Republican primary. Uh, and I, you know, I don't think any of the Republican candidates are going to back off of this. The, the idea of gender ideology being inserted into American culture and American institutions and American schools right now is so motivating for Republicans that I just think it's going to be a core of every primary out there, this one and even down the ballot. So um, there are exceptions, of course, to to what Scott said. These people aren't doing very well in the polls necessarily, certainly not in Iowa. Uh, But both Chris Christie and Governor Asa Hutchinson have said when it comes to uh, uh, youth, people under 18, that should be up to the parents. 
That should be up to the parents. I might not agree with it. Uh, that's what Governor Hutchinson says. But I'm not going to intrude. That's Governor Christie's position as well. Is there room in the GOP primary for that kind of argument? I don't understand it, but I'm not going to tell parents what not to do, you know, what to do or not to do with their kids. I think the overwhelming position of most Republican voters is that when it comes to institutions like the military, things like our schools, there is a great deal of skepticism about gender ideology and anything that kind of diverges from the traditional view. And so I think that Scott is right in his assessment of what Republican voters are going to be looking for. Now, I think Governor Hutchison's challenges in the Republican primary are going to be a lot more than just about social issues. I think just Christie's challenges in a Republican primary are going to be that his unfavorables are quite high among Republican voters already. But it's it's also the case that to the extent there are sort of more socially moderate Republicans, they are not necessarily a majority of the party, and they're certainely not a majority of your caucus goers in a place like Iowa. How do you think this this issue, uh, how do you see this issue as a Democrat? Well, I mean, they are they are wading into issues that not only do they lack sensitivity or empathy or understanding or science, uh, but I also think they turn off a great deal of Americans because they're not focused on pocketbook issues. Uh, the further Republicans delve into wokeness or the f- further they delve into cultural issues, uh, the further they are leaving Main Street. I will also say that when you look at someone like Nikki Haley, who has made one of her uh, landmark campaign topics to be uh, transgender women playing in, in, in sports. There are literally more bills in this country that outlaw transgender women from participating in sports than there are women, transgender women, actually participating in those sports. It is a very small it's number. It's a very small yeah. number. And so, yeah, I, I would say that if someone in my family wanted to grow up and be transgender, then I would love them the same way. Right. And being able to look into a camera and say that and articulate that, unfortunately, is something that many Republicans either can't do because they don't have the empathy or won't do because they won't win a race. Either way is sad. All right. Thank you all. Appreciate it. We're also monitoring some major uh, developments uh, abroad. An American soldier is detained in North Korea right now after crossing over the border at the DMZ. We're now learning that the soldier was already in trouble before this happens, stay with us. In our world lead, new information just in about a U.S. soldier who has apparently been detained in North Korea after the soldier crossed the demarcation line in the demilitarized zone or the DMZ. This is the space between North and South Korea. CNN's Will Ripley has been to North Korea uh, more than a dozen times and joins us now from Taiwan. Well, I've been to the DMC. That's one of the scariest places I've ever been uh, on this planet. Uh, What are you learning about this soldier? Yeah, you're right, Jake. It is like a Cold War relic that basically there are these old buildings that straddle the border, the built one building on the south side, the other on the north side. And it seems as if this young man uh, who's now being identified as Travis King uh, is the U.S. national who crossed into North Korea. Now, Travis King apparently joined the army uh, in 2021. He was serving as a cavalry scout. Um, he had no deployments on his record, but he did spend 50 days in detention in South Korea. Apparently, he was facing some sort of disciplinary action over assault uh, and was actually about to be sent back to the United States. He was even uh, at an airport where he was able to break free from the people who were minding him, if you will, trying to get him back on that plane. And instead, he went to the DMZ and, uh, you know, because he was set to be administratively separated from the army, apparently, Jake, he decided that he'd have a better uh, deal going to North Korea. Uh, 
well. We'll see how that works out for him. Yeah, that doesn't seem that smart. Um, you have a unique perspective on how North Korean officials think and operate, uh, given how many times you've obviously been to North Korea. How do you think the North Koreans are navigating this? It really could turn into a serious diplomatic dispute. Yeah, I mean, this is they've, they've had Americans defect before, although the last time it happened was more than 40 years ago, back in 1982. Uh, and I'm talking about American servicemen. There have been people that have defected from the United States. Like there was an NYU student I interviewed uh, just uh, several years ago who, who was there and was basically held and then released eventually back to the United States. You know, they will talk to this person. And if there's some sort of propaganda value to show him or to, you know, to, to have him share his story about how he thinks, uh, you know, the DPRK uh, it's such an amazing place if they put them on state TV. You know, they've done that in the past with detained American servicemen. In fact, some Americans even appeared on North Korean uh, movies where they played the, uh, you know, casting of an, e- an evil Westerner, Jake. So uh, probably, though, he'll probably just stay locked up until something's worked out and he's sent home. All right. Well, Ripley in Taipei, Taiwan, thank you so much. Good to see you. And former ambassador... Bill Richardson has been to North Korea to try to negotiate the release of various Americans detained. He's been rather successful, and he joins Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room right after this. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. That's it for the lead in Columbia, South Carolina. Our coverage continues now with my friend Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 